0: Hello, and welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we are back with our extended coverage of Operation Finale from the year 2018. Uh, Cam, we have a very special guest joining us today. Who do we have? Yes, we are talking to
1: screenwriter Matthew Orton, who um, wrote this as a spec script, had it picked up by MGM, and I mean... In terms of a production to go through,
0: like this was a pretty dream first, you know, a professional gig assignment. We really enjoyed speaking with Robbie from Fighting on Film earlier in the week about the movie. Uh, so I, I think without further ado, Cam, let's roll that interview. And joining us now on the show, the screenwriter of this week's film, Operation Finale, it is Mister Matthew Orton. Hello, sir. How are you doing?
2: Hello, oh, very well. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Lovely to meet you guys.
0: Absolute pleasure to have you with us here. It's always great to see and speak to someone that's been involved in films that we tackle on the show, it's really help us sort of break it down, and figure out why and how it was all put together. Um, sure. uh, you, you, you've joined a long list of fantastic screenwriters that have joined the show, so uh, we're happy to have you aboard.
2: I'm uh, thrilled to join their illustrious ranks, and uh, I hope I can keep up. I'll do my best.
0: Um, well, what we tend to do with these is, is start with the beginning a little bit. So sure. before Operation Finale, mm. uh, and I've read the story of how you got there a little bit, but we'll we'll piece that together as you go. But let's take it back to the early days. What made you want to get into writing?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I, growing up, I'm sure like you guys, I went to the cinema um, all the all the time. It was the best way to get out of the house. It was like kind of the the only place you could really go on dates when you were like 13, 14 um and uh it was i i don't know i was just i was in love with the movies I, I i would go multiple times a day i would go every week um and i think when and i was always into creative writing i used to write these um sort of short stories by long hand um i would read my little brother um, bedtime stories and make them up uh to try and get him to go to sleep when, when i was young uh, so storytelling i guess has always been um something I've been drawn to and then when I was about 15 I think I asked my mum how movies got written who wrote them and she bought me Sid Field's screenplay um and so I read that at age 15 I I mean fortunately she's happy with my career choice now but she's probably kicking herself uh when I came out of university and was like I think I want to do this for buying that book way back then but I um yeah, I, I, I devoured it, I, I tried writing a, a script at school, and then I went to university and I studied history, um, and I learned about the Spanish conquest of the Aztecs, and I thought, fuck me, this would be a great... Oh, am I allowed to swear on your show? Sorry. Go, uh, Go nuts. I, I, cool. You, okay. you can great. now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you, uh, up until this point, it had been very PG, but uh, I'll, try, I'll try not to say too much. Um, But my, um, yeah, no, I read about the Spanish conquest of the Aztecs and I thought, you know, this this would be an amazing movie or show or something. And I basically didn't get an internship uh, the summer after my first year of uni, like all of my friends did. And so I was sort of dicking around in the summer, like, what am I going to do with my time? And suddenly thought, why don't I try writing this as a show? I've, I've loved the show. And I, I I think I got some advice from a screenwriter who was like very, very jaded and said, you shouldn't write anything but what you love. And so if you want to write something, just write something you're really passionate about. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm really passionate about this. So anyway, I wrote this ridiculously expensive hour long pilot. This is like 2008, eight, two thousand, yeah, summer 2008. So I wrote this pilot. Uh, you know, I'm in lots of plays at university. I direct some theatre, blah blah blah. Um, but I leave university and I'm like, okay, I probably got to go and be a grown up. And um, but, but 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 did a small part in a TV show, and it paid me enough money so that I could go travelling for six months. I went travelling for six months, came back and thought, ah, ah, you know, I've got to I've got to try the writing thing. Um, and by complete coincidence, um, Game of Thrones had just started, and so suddenly. Whereas before, a pilot script about the Spanish conquest of the Aztecs um, was preposterous, especially as a first-time writer, first first, first piece by a you know, new writer. Um, the market was kind of looking for it. Uh, there were, there, there were, people were genuinely interested in these sort of big budget, big scale shows, and so that pilot script, which was like just a thing I'd written in my summer, ended up being my. Key to getting uh, my first agent, my first couple of commissions. Um, and then there was kind of three years of real like grind and struggle, and you know, all, all of the like work in the worst jobs. And uh, actually, not the worst, I had tutored for the sons and daughters of the world's billionaires for a while, which was pretty fun um, and gave me a lot of material for stories. Um, but you know, there was also a lot of like uh, shooting behind the scenes videos for crap bands and. Uh, I worked at Simon Cowell's company for a bit. Like, um, anyway, uh, and, then, and, and then in 2015, I came across the idea of Operation Finale, um, and then it kind of went from there.
1: Well, you know, not to get too far ahead there, but like, you know, yeah, yeah. you've got your Aztec project, and now we're going to go into Finale. I'm just curious, as a writer, what about sort of these historical um, projects grabbed you because you said you know you want to basically write what you love, and so where does the mm. historical tie for you come?
2: Believe it or not, I
1: love I really
2: love history. Um, I, I you know I I, I I I thought briefly about going to film school um, when I was eighteen, and my parents were like, no, you like need to get a proper degree, and so I guess my response to that was to go and study history for three years, um, but uh, you know. To me, history, and especially this like deep diving on specific periods reminds you both of the repetitive nature of the human experience, but also how like many of the world's issues that we're tackling today have already been tackled so many times in so many different places across history. And so you begin to, re- there's that great Mark Twain quote, isn't there? I don't know if it's actually his, but he's certainly credited with it. That history. Doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, um, and so I so so for me I, I like to try and write about today and things that are on my mind today or things that I care very passionately about today. Um, but often writing about particularly political stuff today can be difficult because our politics is kind of stranger than fiction, and so much in the way great sci-fi does this, I find that really great history can tap on kind of current zeitgeists or current Political, moral, ethical questions um, in a kind of world that isn't our own, so it feels um, uh, kind of analogous. Is analogous is that right, is that the wrong word? That's, I hmm. think it's a word. I think. <laughs> um, uh, do you know what, does that make sense? Yeah, um, it does. Yeah. You know, Game of Thrones is a great show. For just exploring like power and geopolitics but it's set in a fantasy land and, and sort of history particularly um distant history has that fantastical quality to it uh, or that other uh, that, that sort of sense of not being now that sci-fi fantasy also can do um so yeah i think that's that's sort of what draws me into history and also I, you know i i think that um sorry this is to really go off on a tangent one of the things i really care about and i'm just so fascinated by and passionate about is um how stories have shaped humanity forever and how we are all governed by whether we know it or not these kind of narratives and often overlapping narratives um that confuse control shape how we interact with the world and so i I find it really interesting going back into history and looking at like Pivotal moments where the world has sort of developed one way of thinking about something, or has kind of uh, something happened that maybe shifted our understanding of a moment, Um, and those bits of our past, I think, are really interesting because they inform the world as we know it today. Does that make sense? That sorry, that's probably very boring and philosophically sounding.
1: No, no, that makes a lot of sense, and actually reminds me a lot of some of the discussion points that came up when you were, and other people were promoting Finale um, when it was being released. So, yeah, and we can talk more about that later. But yeah, I think this all sure, makes sure, sense, sure. yeah.
0: I, I think as well, like, it, it, listeners will know, but obviously you just met us. Cam and I met over a mutual love of Star Trek. And that is sure. filled with analogy
2: and metaphor. And, and, mm. you
0: can do, and I can definitely see the similarities between that and the historical stories and telling it that way. It makes complete sense
2: there is an amazing al jazeera interview with a um i think think he was a member of isis who talked about seeing the star wars movies as a young boy and identifying so strongly with the jedi movement because he was like because obviously the empire is america right and it's just such an amazing like huh yeah that is story yeah okay cool um that's that's a that's a thing that's just stuck with me i saw that very early on in my career and it's always stuck with me just that like you know how how a terrorist could see himself as the freedom fighter and and there's you know obviously one man's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter sure but that's such a great example and moment where that really came into focus um so again you know you can take uh, great moments in history and actually just by looking at them from a different perspective or thinking about what they may actually have been like as opposed to our Hollywood imagining of what they're like um, and really kind of start to pick at kind of our understanding of a moment, a person, a time, a place, um, and thus like where we are now, if that makes sense.
0: No, totally. And I think I think the last question I have before we, we drift into Operation Finale is, you know, you are talking about you spent a few years and you were yeah you, know, you had an agent you were just getting your foot in the door at that point when it comes to writing. <clears throat> what were some people you were looking to other screenwriters in Hollywood or in the u k anything like that as sort of inspiration on the way they write and how do they influence you
2: That's a really good question actually and um I, I I wish I had a a more rigorous answer for you because really what ends up happening when you're or for me at least when I was coming up I didn't go to film school and I didn't really have access to lots of um mentors until i hit about uh 2015 and i got my first mentor which I'll, I'll talk about it in a sec um but the um I, I don't know if you guys would have ever read a read a script by stephen knight um i don't I know love stephen knight is yeah i don't love every one of his movies um though some of them are outstanding um and i've read a lot of first drafts of his which are a bit more dubious but I think that he is a beautiful scriptwriter, I think he has an amazing understanding of character structure, pace, but he also makes these scripts sort of nice to read, beautiful to read um and 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 he was the first screenwriter that I had come across drew, drew Goddard's very good at this as well um who, who really kind of uh brought a more novelistic quality to the screenplay format which as i'm sure you guys have read many but they can be really dry and boring and kind of um minimalist and that's fine i mean sometimes you read minimalist screenplays like the alien screenplay famously is amazing is quite kind of um simple um but but sometimes it's just great to be like fully immersed uh in a world literarily, I don't think that's a word I'm just making up. Um, but you know, like the, being immersed in the literature of uh, what you're reading and the kind of allowing uh, your words to evoke feelings or ideas or thoughts inside of your reader rather than just being like X and Y enter the room. Uh, Tyler Sheridan, though I think sometimes his portrayal of women sucks, um, is a really beautiful screenwriter as well. Um, really like vivid landscapes, depictions of kind of uh, characters, their backstories. He kind of works that stuff into the body of the text, which I I really respond to. Um, Yeah. Well, it it
0: makes total sense. You think about like, you're writing this a lot of the times for the actor to pick up and then get an idea and you're you're influencing and informing them about what Mm. their character is going to be without necessarily, necessarily saying, my character x used to be an accountant he feels like <laughs> yes, it's about yeah. accountancy you're saying things yeah, yeah. without saying them i get it yeah i get it
2: yeah absolutely but also but also you know it's such a kind of cinema at its best is such an emo- emotive evocative medium that is sort of pounding multiple senses at once uh, to not at least try and get some of that out of the page i think is to kind of miss or undersell yourself as a writer and the the possibility of the movie at large um obviously sometimes it backfires because you've put this really elaborate description of a lead actor in there and then you find out they've gone to somebody who doesn't match that description and you're like what did did no one think to change the no okay cool we're just gonna all right so yeah that happens too
0: i'm wondering what your description of oscar isaacs was in the script
2: now <laughs> god uh dashingly handsome and brilliant at uh, acting probably something like that nicely I, saved uh, <laughs> uh, no i'm afraid i have nothing but positive things to say about oscar um he's, he's he's a real gent um yeah so
1: when you you know write the spec script for operation finale i guess yeah you know, my main question is you know why that story why did that feel like the one you want you had to tell
2: hmm so uh it's really interesting I, I i got introduced to the idea by a friend who ended up um being like an associate producer on the project who wanted who was suggesting sort of making it as a um a really contained thriller a sort of you know it all takes place within the safe house and it's all about the interrogation of eichmann there's actually already a play that is that um uh but I, I and and you know i was like oh that's maybe a cool way of doing it i don't know if that's something that i would want to do but i but i'm interested in into the story and i began digging into it and again to sort of um go back to what we were talking about before I, I, i'm always interested when a story speaks either to like a particular thing that's going on in the world at the moment or something that uh, i am dealing with psychologically emotionally some sort of thing that i want to unpack Um, And reading the story of not just Peter Malkin, but the operation at large and the impact that it had on Israel, this new country, I was really struck by this kind of um, notion of arrested development or this idea of like not quite being able to let go of your past and thus being unable to embrace your future um and 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 the kind of moment of catharsis that israel and in the movie we sort of posit malkin felt uh, and achieved by this capture of eichmann um and i had um you know i'd lost someone incredibly close to me at a young age and i've been really s- sort of I-, I had this on my back all of the time it was sort of the thing that drove me to uh try and succeed it still to some extent does i think. Um, and uh so i I really connected to this guy who had lost someone that he'd loved very dearly and had never quite been able to let go of that and was sort of driven by that but also slightly destroyed by it um and so i began to really connect to the character and i also began to connect to this notion of sort of the formation of israel and the kind of uh moment in this country's history which, let's be honest, has not been a completely um, bloodless and straightforward history. Uh, but but it was a moment in its history, and I do genuinely believe this, where they really did the right thing, and they really aimed to set out their stall as a country uh, of 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 you know saying we don't uh, we don't do this like they did. We we want this to be a, a trial. We want this man to stand and answer for the crimes that he committed. And I, there was something that was kind of Really noble and um, impressive about that, and 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 kind of and it, that that in the context of um, the, the what was going on in Israel at the time, which was this kind of determined uh, determination to not talk about the Holocaust, to not um, sort of uh, what's I after to, to to kind of escape from this idea of Jewish people getting onto trains and being led to their death they wanted to sort of show that it meant something different to be Jewish now um and that up until the trial of Eichmann had sort of resulted in a sense of denial I mean there's terrible stories about how um we, we have it in the movie uh, too um but there's all stories about how Israelis would refer to people who survived the holocaust as soaps um uh, obviously, in reference to the stories of uh, the uh, Jewish people being, well, they're fat rendered and soap them or not, you know, awful, awful stuff. Uh, of, of, and it wasn't out of malice; it was out of kind of a deep, deep sadness and a deep, deep regret. And I think that the capture of Eichmann allowed the country um, a moment of kind of catharsis and a, mo- a moment, to sort of, face the past. You hear these heartbreaking but amazing stories about um just like the tears and the kind of release and the moment these people were able to kind of reconcile this awful thing that happened to them and this place that they're now in uh or that they were now in as a country um anyway so there was a lot of that kind of stuff that i I just found really um uh inspiring and really kind of uh I, I knew what I wanted to say and and, and kind of how I wanted to say, and I knew that it was big um, and I hadn't written a big historical thing for a little while. And I just kind of, you know, so uh, I went on my way, I quit all of my crap jobs. Um, I think I had just been, I think I'd maybe just got my first pilot commission and uh, I got paid like 14 grand, I think. And I was like, all right, I'm going to live off this for, six to eight months and write this thing and it it sounds very um uh, uh, hackneyed and cliche to say but I, I was genuinely down to my last i think like i don't know five or six hundred pounds like i was was real close uh when i got the call about mgm uh wanting to buy operation finale which was cool um
0: well that that's actually a, a point i was going to jump into in a second was mgm but i why to just track back a little bit now? You mentioned there was someone who sort of helped you out earlier on, and yeah, yeah. I see the name Matt Charman pop up on in a uh-huh. on my article. Is...
2: Yeah, Matt Charman. Yep.
0: Yeah. He, well, he's been on the show before. Um, we're big yeah. fans of Matt yeah, for *Bridge of Spies*
2: when we of talked course. about that a while ago. Yeah, I great, great, make, great, great I film. Not... I clearly didn't go through your back catalogue with enough uh, <laughs> of a uh, fine Hugo Matt is the best of men. Yeah, he is my mentor friend uh idol I, I honestly couldn't say more nice things about man i love him um, he became my mentor um in 2015 I, I basically wrote this script um while i was writing the script i'd written a different thing a political thriller um that got me on i make sure i get this right got me onto a mentoring scheme called guiding lights which was a lottery funded thing which sadly doesn't exist anymore but was an amazing Thing for the British film industry. Um, and the whole point of it was that they would um find you a mentor. You could pick anyone that you wanted to be your mentor. And I went and spoke to um, a bunch of people in the industry who I'd met and sort of asked them who they thought would make a good mentor for me. And uh, I think I asked five people, and four of them were like, you know what, you're Matt Charman, you'd get on real well. Um, and so when it came to picking my mentor, Matt Charman was my number one choice. And the people I remember, the people running the program were like, "What? He's a playwright who's like co-written a bit of like a movie," and they're like, "Come on! I mean, we can we can get literally anyone you want." Um, and I just had happened to know that Bridge of Spies was on the way, um, and my whole thing was, "I want to know, I want to know what it's like being someone in the marketplace now, not someone who came up twenty years ago and has enjoyed success for twenty years." Um, And anyway, so they asked, Matt agreed to meet me. We had a wonderful first meeting in BAFTA. He was like, let's do this, let's go. And um, then when the finale script was originally just called finale, the operation was not my idea. Um, But uh, when he read it, he was like, yeah, you should meet my manager. we should like take this out in the States. And that was kind of, yeah. It's cool. Because well, I, I noticed a
0: sort of symmetry when I saw Matt attached as an exec producer on the film, because Bridge of Spies was a, kind of a script and then that got passed around a little bit. And then Steven Spielberg got involved and lo and behold, it's one of the best Steven Spielberg films. I, I personally think. Um, sure. And so yeah, yeah agreed. That, that's how it landed and your film as well. We're getting to the point now you've written it. And there's a space of time where it's, it, it goes to the, on the blacklist, which is the list of spec scripts that need to be made. Mm. Um, mm. But MGM hasn't brought it at this point. So is that where Matt's taking you around Hollywood? Is that is that, that period in time?
2: No, MGM had bought it at that point. We just hadn't announced mm. it. Um, it's a weird one. Like the, the, They bought it on November the 13th, 2015, which is my and Matt's manager's birthday, the wonderful Jeff Silver um who has a fantastic story because i met him on the monday um the friday was his birthday and he called me on his birthday to be like you're not going to believe this but um mgm wanted to buy it um which was cool and so it all happened incredibly quickly it was a very very fast thing um and I, 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 actually the, the sort of slightly longer and more boring story is um It it kind of gone around the British marketplace and we had a couple of people make um, offers on it here. Uh, But one of the guy called Ben Irving, um, uh, who's just left the BBC, but he read it, knew that his company wasn't going to make it, but thought that Jeff, my manager, would really like it. So he sent it to Jeff at about the same time that Matt Charman sent it to his manager. And so that all kind of, and he was like, oh, I've got to, uh, um Anyway, did the whole spiel, uh, agreed to work together on the Monday and then on the Friday, he had sold it. And then I, I can't remember how many, we, we announced it after that some, at some point. Because um, these things, you know, they, it's, everyone gets very excited about the kind of headline. Ah, we're gonna buy it for this, and we're gonna do this, and we're gonna make you this. Um, and then actually the like, paperwork takes fucking ages. And so it's not as exciting as you sort of think it's going to be. Um, but it's super cool. Uh, yeah, it was super cool. And it was very strange actually. Ha- I remember it happened on the, the night of the Paris uh, terrorist attacks. And my housemate at the time was Parisian. And so I sort of got this call at 11 o'clock at night being like, hey buddy, your life's going to change forever. And I was by myself and sort of sat in bed didn't know who to call it was too late to like call my parents or anything and then my housemate came back so I was like oh finally someone I can talk to about it she was in floods of tears and we stayed up all night watching the news coverage roll in and at about four o'clock in the morning she was like you seemed really happy when I came in is is anything is everything okay I was like oh yeah actually yeah it is it's quite good um but yeah it was a very strange evening um yeah Well,
1: it seemed like from doing the research on sort of the development of this movie in comparison, because every week we do this where we're tackling in a movie and sometimes the um, journeys to the screen are (laughs) tortured at best. And this seemed like a case where it's like a lot of the pieces fell into place pretty quick. And I would like to know about, you know, when Chris uh, White
2: entered the picture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Chris, Chris actually came on board quite early. We, it's very funny. At the, I, I am probably allowed to tell this story. Um, at the premiere, um, John Glickman, the then president of MGM, sort of got up on stage and gave this very sweet speech. Um, this is the same guy who, when I first went to America, um, sat across from me. He's like head of, I, he was, I think he was second in command at MGM. First time I've ever been to LA. They've obviously bought this script of mine, flown me over. It's all loads. We're in the meeting room for the first time talking about which directors we might want to speak to. John is just there, sitting in his chair, leaning back, and just interrupts everybody, points at me, and says, How old are you? And I, and I was like, uh, How old do you think I am, John? And he goes, Nope, don't fuck with me. How old are you? Uh, and I was like, I'm 26. And he went, Go fuck yourself. Go fuck <laughs> yourself. And that, that was it. That was all he said, all meeting. And I came out and I was like, Did I do something? Ah. Uh, <laughs> He's great. Um, but John in the premiere was like, you know, there was only one person I wanted to go to with this project, Chris White. And Chris came on stage and was like, I know that's not true, but I appreciate it all the same. <laughs> it's <was> amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Chris Chris, I mean, but but to be fair, both to John and Chris, he was he was, I think, one of the first like three or four people we spoke to. He's got a obviously deep personal connection to the project, the subject subject material, um, I think was looking to do something a bit more serious in the space. Um, And he's just like a deeply thoughtful, um, intelligent guy. Um, And so he came on quite early. We, and so I did a pass of the script for him. uh, And then we, I I can't remember how, I honestly can't remember exactly where it came from, but someone was like, we think Oscar might be interested in this. So we gave the script to Oscar. Um, He was like, I'm interested in this, but I want to do a rewrite with you guys. So we then went to New York and sort of worked with him for a while on the script. Um, And that was, that was cool. Just like going to New York to hang out with Oscar Isaac. I was like, Oh, all right. This is a, experience i've never been to new york before and yeah um turns out he knows like the cool bits of new york who knew um (laughs) and we yeah and then and then that that process took i think about a year on and off and then um yeah we we sort of finished the draft that we would go out a bit more widely with um finding our eichmann we went through a couple more people than... I mean, Oscar was the f- only person we spoke to, for Peter Malkin. Um, I think when we spoke to a couple um, and then obviously landed Ben Kingsley, Sir Ben Kingsley. Um, uh, the Yeah, and then the rest of the cast came together super quickly. Um, obviously the wonderful Leo Raz, Fowder um, of Fowder fame. Uh, Nick Kroll was amazing. Um, Great, great addition lovely guy. Um yeah, it was cool. It like really um it it was it was it was a dream in terms of process. It came together very fast. Um and you know, for for a sort of uh movie with no sort of uh, pre-established IP or kind of it it existed, was made, I think it it's thirty-two mil in the end was the budget, which is like a really unusual level of studio movie these days. Uh, and, and even then, um, amusingly enough, sorry, I'll stop talking in a second. But, um, the, uh, the other person who had been trying to buy the script the same time MGM was, was Harvey Weinstein. Uh. And I, on that weekend, um, I was told, that, the MGM weekend, I was told to not answer my phone because it would be Harvey trying to call me. Um, and, and sure enough, like I got a bunch of calls from an unknown number and didn't answer and did in fact meet harvey twice i think after this um to because he you know was like "Ah, oh, i never wanted it anyway uh, blah, 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 blah. um anyway we were on set shooting operation finale when the news when the me too news broke and it was like mad because the whole team we just had this collective shiver through our spines because we we're like wow we that wow uh and we were never I mean MGM were such brilliant partners and we would never have gone with Harvey Park because he's sort of infamous for not paying people properly and all that sort of crap. Um um but uh it was just yeah, it was a real was a real sort of someone walking over your gravestone kind of moment.
0: It's definitely it's definitely a parallel universe sort of thing there, the what could have been Wow. Like, but also, also a bit scary i imagine what that we, set was we, like we would
2: not day. we would not yeah we would not be having this chat i think in that parallel universe um sadly i'd have yeah. probably been fired from the movie and you know rewritten by i do <laughs> someone someone who would do his bidding um but yes anyway uh yeah
0: well, yeah, you mentioned you actually kind of jumped into my next question a little bit as well. Actually, there with the you mentioned you did a sort of rewrite for Chris, and then when Oscar came on board, you did a rewrite there as well. Um, mm. You you've been with the script, which is it's quite rare actually, especially from the screenwriters we've spoken to. A lot of them just hand over the script, and off they go, and then the film gets made. And you you seem to have stayed with it. I I, re- I was watching an interview with you earlier today where you spoke about staying with it, and making some changes God. during production. Yeah, yeah, yeah
2: sure. Mm. Um,
0: but I mean, you cast your mind back a wee bit now. But are there any major changes that were made to the script along the way? Things that were taken away that you sort of missed, or things added that you think were brilliant? You know,
2: loads, loads. I mean, you know, one of the it was my first, obviously, experience having a having having a movie made, right? So, and and actually, like I think before I say any of this, um, firstly, Chris and MGM actually were just so generous both in terms of keeping me there and around um like chris knew that i wanted to direct one day and so was like you should watch me because this will be a good lesson for you and it was like being in film school for eight weeks um he's remarkably generous with his time um and just you know in general it it was it was so cool to just be the writer on the project um loads of stuff changed and I watch back over the movie now, and there's some stuff that I, I mean, I haven't watched the movie in a couple of years actually, but um, there's some stuff that I really wish we'd been able to actually have in there. Uh, I think it's it's sort of, it it hurts the movie and not being there. There's a couple of uh, mistakes that I see as a writer where I'm like, ah, fuck, come on, man. Why didn't you think of that? Um, And, like so so there are kind of there are lots of those sorts of things. In terms of actual um big shifts, I think the first draft of the script, the one that sold to MGM, was much lighter on its feet. It was much more kind of playful and um I think that the humor, I hope at least punches through in the in the sort of finished version, but there was a lot of that, there was a lot of humor in it, um, which I always think is a really important um Thing to include in any, any dramatic writing, really, but especially stuff dealing with heavy themes. Uh, if you, you know, if you give your, if, if you allow your audience to laugh, then I think you give them permission to cry, and um, I think that's just you know, helpful. Um, and 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 so I think some of that was pulled back on a bit in the interest of kind of the the sort of significance of it, the drama of it, however you want to, whatever you want to call it. Um, and so you know, it originally had a bit more of a heisty feel to it, a bit more of a kind of um, pro- probably a bit more of an Argo-y feel to it. To be honest, I mean, that was always the big challenge with this project: is that it ends basically the same way as a Argo. So making sure that that didn't happen was uh, a constant head scratcher. And then, of course, you know, as you was the road as the rubber hits the road on these things. Um, questions start coming up about budgets and uh, you know like we actually can't afford to have that actor so we're going to get this actor um or maybe english isn't their first language so you know we're going to need to change some of the blah 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 um or uh you know where there was a sequence here in a car we're going to cut that and 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 that stuff kind of in itself you don't really notice it changing the movie but when you look back on the overall piece you're like oh why is why is this bit not as kinetic as it was once in the script and you realize it's because you've slowly pulled out a lot of those moments um from the uh, from what it was before it's also just amazing sorry i'm rambling again but it's amazing seeing how much movies change in the edit i just everyone always says it but my god when you get in there you're like huh that is a different movie um, and that, that's not I, that makes it sound like that's the case with Operation right It's it's it, it's a bit different, but it's not. Um, I'm not like, wait, what? They caught him. Um, but uh, it's yeah. That so that was again. And Chris again, very generous having me in the edit, like showing me how it worked, talking me through his process. That was super cool. Um, and, I mean, do you want me to think of specific changes? Because I, I probably can, um, but I'll need to let me wrap my brain. Uh um,
0: oh, you you can have it on the back burner and think about it. We're happy to know
2: things if you know them, yeah. If it pops to you, like. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, I I think that um well I think in the first draft Yeah, in fact that's right. None of the Lo the, the Lothar Herman stuff and Sylvia and her dating Klaus, that all existed in the first half from the beginning, but um none of the kind of kidnapping of the maid or um the uh no sorry yeah kidnapping and torture of the maid and also the kidnapping of lothar Herman, uh both of which are things that happened after the operation but did actually happen um including the carving of a swastika into her chest um neither of those things happened in the original um i i I think that i made up a lot more stuff that the takawara did in terms of like hunting them down and like I, I i think i played a little more fast and loose with history um and oh i tell you the one thing that one thing that i do remember that i am to this day sad that we cut um previously we met eichmann um during the vancy conference and he had a st- uh, this this is sort of in the movie but it doesn't it, it wasn't what i had envisaged um, he has a stain on his shirt and he scratches and scratches at it and then we realised that people are waiting for him to talk and so he stands up and gives his speech at the Vansi conference and then licks his finger and wipes it and it comes off um, and we went from that to a sequence of basically Eichmann escaping so he had this amazing escape across Europe and into Latin America and there was a kind of um, stylized like uh him as a lumberjack and he's kind of chopping and his face is red and he lies down in the snow and the snow goes on his face and it melts and like there was like a really fun like how did Eichmann get from there to South America um that was that was an an early like yeah that's going to be expensive let's um yeah so I just remembered that a good one
1: no, that's, that's great. Um, Thanks for that. Um, One aspect of the movie that I think you like did really well was juggling the elements, um, which is that like, you're telling a thriller that a mainstream audience can enjoy, but I would, you know, Scott and I have covered a number of, you know, World War Two, you know, espionage thrillers. Sure. And there's a certain expectation the audience has. And I feel like when you bring the Holocaust into it, suddenly the audience's stomach drops. And that can be incredibly difficult to convey in a way where the audience walks out of the movie being like, that was really good, you know, telling their friends they should go and see it. And that's Mm. something I think this movie really does a fantastic job at. And I would like to know from you, just balancing the elements of that, like heavy subject material with a spy plot people can get invested in. And of course, you know, characters they can get invested in.
2: Mm. Well, part of that is obviously, um, and again, this is, you know, uh, in no small part, thanks to um, that amazing book, Eichmann in in my hands by by Peter Malkin, of um, just like the the work that has been done post the kidnapping and execution of Eichmann to sort of humanize the guy, and that's not to that is not to kind of um, suggest he's anything other than you know, like a heinous criminal that you know deserved the worst fate, um, but by trying to place him in a uh, a human context as opposed to a kind of villainous nazi context um it 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 sort of opens it opens the movie up into being something slightly different from a conventional Holocaust movie and then also um again the humor just making sure that um you don't stray too hard and fast into the kind of horrors of the Holocaust without giving people an opportunity to kind of um uh it's the word for that? they unwind basically with humor um and i you know i think one of the shinner's list obviously like ray fines's character is completely despicable but there are there are funny moments in it and when you find yourself laughing in amongst the horror i think it actually serves to like deepen the moments that are horrific but stop them from becoming stifling and um unbearable i mean a, a, an amazing movie that i love and am hugely inspired by is son of saul but it's a hard watch like it do you know what i mean because it is just unrelentingly yeah. bleak um and, and so i completely agree I, I think a lot of a lot of movies that touch on the holocaust struggle to find a tone that both feels um respectful without being um uh overly difficult or or, or, or um, overly heavy, I suppose. Um, yeah, So so and, and actually, to be honest, having a, a lead in Oscar, he's so charming and so watchable and so, con- he's a very really smart actor. And so he knows sort of what audiences will and won't respond to. He knows the side of himself to show when. Um, and I think he really got the idea of like bringing an audience in gently before you begin to unpack the heaviness of what a lot of the movies kind of orientated around, if that makes sense.
0: Definitely. No, for sure. It, it's, um, it's, it's, it's actually a question I was going to ask anyway, so it sort of leads beautifully from this. And it's a problem I had with the film, and not in the sense mm. of pointing at anyone in particular, but it, I, you know, I was watching Ben Kingsley portray this man who I know to be abhorrent. Mm. And he's giving it... He's giving him a character, he's giving him a life, he's giving him a personality and quirks and all these sorts of things. And I at times thought, like, this is too human. Mm. But then I watch an interview with Ben Kingsley about the film and he says, that's the point. We're we're meant to show that he is and what we are capable of. Mm. And that's a scary realisation to make. So I suppose to bring it to a question, Mm. um, what was it like for you trying to navigate those waters and trying to make it sound bridging the side being farcical and also very straight?
2: yeah sure 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 i mean there's that scene where he has to take a shit which um is sort of yeah um i mean i mean like i suppose when i come down on it and and came down on it and and what i always come back to is this uh, the, the, the 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 tragic but true realization that all of these heinous things are just done by people like we are we are all Uh, maybe capable is the wrong word but like humankind is capable of the worst atrocities but we're also at the same breath capable of like loving our families loving our you know pets doing good things for our community and i guess in a world as polarized and polemic as ours currently is and seems to be becoming i am drawn to material where it's like hey hey like this guy is the fucking worst." But like that, don't write him off as just a monster. Because if we think of him as just a monster, if we think of Eichmann as like this um, kind of quirk, this this anomaly in the human condition, we will miss the next one. Like humans are capable of this shit, and um, I think it is important to understand that just because someone loves his kid or just because someone um, you know looks after his partner doesn't mean they're not capable of also murdering or signing off on the murder of millions of people and so I kind of um saw it as a important way of exploring um the the a a more important way of exploring the character than just being like look at Eichmann he's a monster they need to catch a monster um because of course that is not what the real world is like as much as we Wish maybe sometimes that it was. There's a great interview that um, I think it's Adam McKay actually. I think he, someone asked him how he would do the movie of Trump, and he was like, "You would, uh, you know, show a guy waking up in the morning, going and looking at his fat, schlubby body in the mirror, hating himself, and just knowing that he was going to have to go out the day and and face the world." And and instead of doing that with humility, he puts on this armor of, you know, odious confidence. And suddenly you're like, ah, he's still the worst fucking person in the world. But I, I kind of get it, or like I get where he's coming from. And, you know, that's what makes antiheroes often so uh, compelling. I'm not suggesting someone should do a movie of Eichmann from his POV as an antihero. But, like, I, I do think that the kind of, Finding this humanity in evil people reminds us, if it's done responsibly, that, um, uh, you know, lots of seemingly nice people are not that far away from very awful things. And we must always be conscious and careful of that.
0: Well, it goes to show the, and credit to you, really, this is your first film in, like, major motion picture made, and you're Mm. dealing with these hard issues. You know, you could easily write a script about, you know, a, a romance, a rom-com, or something as your first film, but no, you, you're tackling these heavy-hitting things, and I think you do it with finesse. And it's something I personally have trouble dealing with, but that's just me and my own hang-ups.
2: It's not yeah, really sure, sure, me, yeah, sure, sure, sure. by the way, by the way, I got some, I got some very angry emails off the back of it. Uh, I got some really? very nice emails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got some. I got some people who weren't very happy with the um, the the way that the movie chose to. And actually, to be honest, some of the some of the reviews. I, you know, I should say, I'm really proud of the movie. I see a lot of problems with it, um, very proud of it. But, and I, and I think that some of the reviews are fair. Some of them, I think though, got quite hung up on that challenge of like um, how we've chosen to portray Eichmann, the sort of attempts to humanize him or dig into his philosophy or what philosophy there was. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there's more we could have done, um, uh, but, yeah I I, I I i i thought that was for me it was one of the project strengths It was one of the reasons for doing it
0: no i, I mean if you listen to uh, you know the, the review earlier this week cam and our guests both speak highly of that it's me myself who has the the issue so you know
2: you're just slagging it off yeah i'm just taking <laughs> a shot i've got stop.
0: i've got the screenwriter here oh, you know? why not <laughs> no I, I wanted to i wanted to unpack it with you because that's that's why yeah, yeah, no, i wanted to hear your yeah, side yeah, of it sure.
2: yeah of course Well,
0: I would like
1: to know if you had any connection or contact with the Malkin family um, during the process of the script.
2: You you know, one of my deepest frustrations with the process was that very early on after MGM had bought it. So obviously the story is in the public domain. Uh, There's a lot of information, articles, books, you know. Um, The rights to Peter Malkin's book were tied up, I believe, in quite a complicated, I think someone had had them for a long time and didn't want to relinquish them. I can't remember the specifics of it. Um, but I reached out to Peter Malkin's son. I, th- I think I reached out to him via LinkedIn. And then, oh, did he reach out to me? I can't remember. We, we basically had a brief bit of contact. And then I mentioned to the studio that I was talking to him, and whoever had the rights to his dad's book sent the studio a cease and desist letter, which is just, you know, an attempt to spook them, I think. But um, the studio, like, you must not talk to him. You you have to stop. Um, and it really sucked because I was like, I'm writing about his dad. Like, this is preposterous. And they were like, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. But, like, you can't right now. And... Um, they basically spent, I, I think, the whole development time of the film trying to figure it out, didn't figure it out. But then by the time it was done, they had sort of figured it out. And he came to the premiere and I got to meet him. And it was wonderful.
1: Oh, that's great. I
2: think, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it was really cool. It was, that was really nice. It's a shame though, because I, I, I would have loved for them to be on set and sort of seen our rendering of their dad. Of course, it's a fictionalized version of the man, but like, that would have been that would have been cool. Um, it, it, it's always I'm I'm now actually as a result of this very careful when I'm adapting um, something that involves sort of still living people or the families still living people. Where possible, to kind of check before diving in or before actually fictionalizing these people, that they'll be able to attend a premiere or at least like have conversations about it. Because it just feels a bit icky as a writer. It just feels wrong to you know take someone's story like that. Um so yeah, do my best, but doesn't always work.
1: So do you think in a different scenario, like had you had more contact with them before writing it, it would have shaped the way you'd written the movie?
2: Um, maybe. I think I mean there's so much material out there. Um I got such a comprehensive I mean, there's movies, all bad, but you know, they they still exist. Uh there's um tons and tons of literature. Um so I had a pretty clear idea of like how I wanted to structure the movie, how I wanted um, the character to kind of interact with the people around him. It may have, yeah. The thing is, like, people are more complicated than they're often portrayed in movies. And so there might have been a great opportunity to add a little bit of that complication. But it's quite a kind of busy movie anyway. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I yeah, I, I I, I don't think I... Um, would have it, it would only have added texture as opposed to like I think revolutionized to the the plotting or anything. Uh, might have had an impact on the character arc as well. I took the sort of um, I did speak to the daughter sorry, the son of the anesthesiologist who was actually on the mission, who in Operation Finale is played by Melanie R- laurent as a woman. And I sat down with this guy in Israel. Um, and sort of asked him loads of questions about his dad and whether or not like, you know, he could tell me anything interesting about what his dad did. And he didn't really have any stories. His dad didn't really talk to him about the whole operation and it sort of it was quite fruitless. And at the end I was like, I think actually I need to, t- I, I think I want to turn one of the characters on the mission into a woman. Like, what do you think about that possibly being like your dad's character? And he like was like, whatever, I you know, didn't really care. Um, and I think at that time, cause it was a, you know, I was just a screenwriter writing this thing on spec. It was just a kind of like, I don't know, who the fuck's this guy? Like, whatever. Um. So I don't think he really thought about it. Uh, and then I think when he saw the actual movie, he was really upset that we hadn't made his dad a character in it. And that, you know, I was I was sad about that. I was sad about him being upset, but I was also like, you know, I told you and like, that is kind of how these things go sometimes. And um So you know, it, it's a it's a it's a weird like when you're telling a story about people either still alive or their families, like it's a really weird one to navigate. And we all just kind of try and do our best, and you know, have the best of intentions. And sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it doesn't.
0: Well, you mentioned this earlier on in the conversation. I, I made a note to bring it back up when we we're sort of talking about the film. uh Originally, it wasn't called Operation Finale. Yeah, Operation wasn't. was added um where did that come yeah. from and were there any other names at any point because it seems oh, that, it seems like a Scott. little bit of contention with you there
2: oh oh yeah little little little, little guy yeah uh <laughs> i'm the bad guy today uh, apparently yeah no, no no you're not the bad guy uh no in this in this particular instance test audiences are the bad guy um so we uh, we actually went through so many so many names for the movie when i sold it it was just called eichmann um which is not a compelling title as the movie that was then subsequently released called eichmann uh shows you um we called it hunting eichmann for a bit um although there's a book called hunting eichmann which is a brilliant book uh that i think mgm were nervous about sort of copyright issues i don't think it's normally a problem with titles but you know just to be safe uh we my one of my favorites though everyone shot me down was the driver is red which was the code name that the israelis relates to one another when they believed that eichmann was eichmann um uh, unfortunately uh the 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 code for eichmann is eichmann not we think eichmann is eichmann was the driver is black um which would have been a really weird title for the film so uh you know, we ditched all of those. Um, I, there, there were a couple of others as well, but but we we ended up on finale. And I was like, yeah, you know what? Final finale, it's got a kind of gravitas to it. It was the name of the operation. It's also to do with the final solution, uh, blah, blah, blah. And we, I remember it was quite close to the release. We were still sort of arguing over the title and we had this meeting, and it was just after a couple of screenings. And um, one of the execs was like, yeah, listen, um, all in all the test screenings we've done, Operation Finale tests better than Finale. And the reason, apparently, was because there was a concern that if we called it Finale. People wouldn't know how to say the word, and they would call it Finale. <laughs> and uh, I... <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know loads about movie making. I don't know loads about human psychology or whatever. But um, but I, but I, I was like, but, but surely they just call it Operation for Nail. Like, no, is that
1: <laughs> <laughs> anyway? It,
2: it was just, it was one of those moments where like you realise the decision was made so long ago, and you're being told as a courtesy. And I don't, I mean, like it, you know, um. I think the person who broke the news to me was uh, this wonderful exec uh, from MGM, who I love very dearly, Cassidy. And she really saw the funny side of it. Um, but but it—it's one of those things where you're like, someone—someone's made this call, and I don't get it. But I—I know that I'm not going to have a say on it. Um, so yeah, that was that was how that one. <laughs> I, it's, it's fine. It, it's fine. I just You don't need the operation in front of it. It makes it sound like a movie that it's not. I, so Anyway, whatever. Operation Argo, would you? Anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's funny, though, because Scott and I covered a while back a movie called Operation Crossbow, which was a World <sighs> War II espionage film. And okay. the movie didn't perform great, and they blamed the fact it had the word operation because people, they thought, thought it was a medical film incredible so they released it as crossbow internationally and so yeah it seems like there's a lengthy
0: use of the word operation in uh spy movie titles where they never quite know what to do with it and just to add a little little extra source to it i mean you look back on license to kill 1989 Mm. they they wanted Mm. to release it as license revoked and apparently parts of the world wouldn't understand they wouldn't understand the word revoked so,
2: <laughs> oh god, there is. Don't like, worry, is, you've had the same yeah. treatment as a Bond film. There you go. I'll take it, I'll take it. Uh, there is some logic that happens in the world that around things like this, and I just don't, you know, you have to. So, I'm, I'm actually right in the middle of a conversation about a spy show that I'm working on, uh, or sort of spy show that I'm working on. That we're now changing the title, I think. Um, and uh, just titles suck man it's so yeah. hard to find the right thing but also when you become attached to something and then someone suggests a shit alternative the 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 the, the immediacy of your reaction is <laughs> um it's terrible um so yeah anyway um uh it's all good
0: well let, let's let's we're talking about sort of the legacy of the film it mm. went out to people at uh, the test screenings now, the film's out there. You, you're at the premiere. You're watching it now in its final complete form. And looking at the film, what are you most proud about the film? Like a scene, perhaps? Because this is your first screenplay to a film. It's a big thing. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, there's a line where uh, Peter Malkin uh, is fighting with, or is, having, like, is doing Krav Maga practice with um, uh, Michael Aronoff, the amazing Michael Aronov, brilliant actor, um and uh Michael Aronoff says something like why do you think they pick you why, why do you think it's always you and he says I don't know anti-semitism and it got such a good laugh and it was a line that had been in there from, from like the very first draft and it was just it, it's such a small silly moment but it was just this like I can I, yeah I can do this like I you know I filled with imposter syndrome every now and again and like it's I, I've still got lots to learn, I'm sure, but it, that that was like one of those moments where I was like, oh yeah, actually, that's cool, that's real. There's there's also another moment where um, when when Oscar Isaac is ex- or when when Peter Malkin is explaining to Eichmann about his sister, and he tells her he tells him what what happened to her, and Eichmann apologizes and tries to say like I don't know what happened to her, and he. And, and Malcolm I think responds with like, I wasn't asking. Uh, and it's just, there's just something in that moment which has always stuck with me of the like, two people trying to find one another, but misunderstanding and that flash of tension. I, I, I don't know. Um, those are two moments that, they're really, really small moments that stand out for me, but they were moments that I think I, I really hang to, because they're moments that I'm not like, oh, I wish we'd done like that, or I wish i you know done this. Um. Uh, yeah. I, so. So. Like. There's. There's loads of. There's loads of bigger things. Like. It was just fucking amazing seeing all of these actors doing this movie and being at a premiere and you know the 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 being a screenwriter can have its sort of moments where you get really kicked in the nuts. Um, but it's pretty. It's pretty cool when you stand on set and you're like this. This came out of my head. Like I just. I don't know. Those are the moments that I, I, I really hang on to, and I, the, the 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 moments that make this job really special. Um, in amongst the uh, operation finale, uh, finale kind of <laughs> shit. Um, but yeah, uh, I'm to think if there's anything. I've just remembered something. Sorry, I will add this. um in the original draft of the script. There was loads of jokes. Rafi Aitan, um played by nick kroll is a famously short person right and he's a very short man and there were loads of jokes in the script about his height in relation to malkin and malkin kind of teasing him for you know being being not that tall because malkin himself was not that tall but he was a bit taller than Rafi. um In reality, Nick Kroll was taller than Oscar. And so those jokes didn't play. So we cut all of them, except history only remembers the tall people. And Oscar says, what about Napoleon? Uh, And he walks off and the line gets a laugh, but it's like, what? (laughs) And that (laughs) is actually a callback to like eight jokes that got cut. And I, I forever am like, why did you, why didn't we rewrite that last scene if you're going to keep it in? But can all the other, it's very weird. Um, but anyway.
1: It definitely does stand out, though, as a line because yeah. uh, Scott and I quoted that to close off the review. So, I mean, <laughs> it worked, I guess, on, at least on some level.
0: Sure. Uh, <laughs> sure. Of all the things. Cheers, of guys. all of the things. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, great. <laughs> Um well I i I suppose the last question I have about finale and Cam you could jump in as well if you have anything. Um it's just in retrospect now as as we said this is, this is your first screenplay made to a major motion picture. What did you take away from it? What did you learn from doing the process?
2: Oh my god man we're going to need another hour and a half for this. Um hmm. I so, so much. Um I really I'll try and boil it down to like two or three of the biggest takeaways um as a writer you spend a lot of your time crafting the words on the page you try and wring meaning out of bits of dialogue you try and describe the way in which an actor might do something obviously not too much you don't want to impose on their craft but you do try and get a sense of like what's going on you you really agonize over what each paragraph is doing which each sentence is doing when you see it then up on screen you realise actually, an actor as good as someone like Oscar Isaac can do all of that with a look. And what it teaches you, I think, or what it's taught me at least, is that when you are writing for screen, write for screen. Don't try and kind of impress people with the um, uh, beauty of your words, because that's not often how people speak. In fact, most people ramble. Most people uh a roundabout or kind of hide what they're really trying to say and what they really mean what they really feel is done with looks and so that was an amazing lesson to take away from the process um i also just for the first time really got to understand and grapple with um an actor's process so again chris because he's the best uh because he's the best and also because i think secretly didn't want to have to deal with this himself uh whenever actors had character questions he was like go speak to matt um and and so that that was quite interesting because people uh nick crow was particularly keen on this and, and and good at this but um he would be like so you know what's like where's my character from and like what you know how did he get from here to here and but, and it's, it really, you realize how rigorously the best of these guys um, interrogate the material and, in, and, and sort of build those characters in their heads. And so that really reminded me that I need to always up my game in terms of the depth of character backstory. Not nothing you're seeing on screen, just like where these people are from, who they are, what they believe, why they believe it. Um, and, and, and having that to hand both makes writing, the process of writing easier and better, um, but also just saves your ass in conversations like that. It means you're not kind of freewheeling. Um, yeah. Uh, I think those are the, huh, never get too attached to bits that you love. The There is a scene, Simon Russell Beale is in the movie for one scene, I think. Um, He plays David Ben-Gurion for one scene and he had this monologue about um, speaking to a British politician and uh, this British politician and asking what the Emperor Titus was famous for and this British politician makes three guesses and they're all wrong to the Jewish people Um, and uh, you know he's like uh fixing poverty, going to war blah, blah 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 uh and he says this is how history remembers this man, this man who destroyed our temple and scattered our people to the wind, and some of it was improvised by simon russell Beale and and a lot of it was there, but it was this amazing stirring speech uh, and it was i i I wish I had it on tape somewhere I'm sure I find it um because it was just like, this is the movie. This is what the movie is about. This is how people remember people like that because they were never held to account. Um, and MGM were like, we need to try and get the movie under two hours. So, and that I think is a huge, that, that was a huge mistake uh, in my opinion. I think that that speech really like would have like uh, hit what the film was about in a really powerful way. But anyway, is what it is. Uh, so yes, never get attached to stuff. That would be my, when I get too attached to stuff. know what you want to fight for. I'm now much better at picking my battles.
1: right. And I just have one final question I wanted to ask, um, yeah, yeah. which is that, like you had a very accomplished technical advisor and consultant on this movie, and Avner uh, Abraham, yeah, who was obviously a former Mossad. And I'm just curious, I wouldn't normally I don't normally ask this of writers, but when you have someone this specialized, does that have any impact? on the work as well because they can contribute so many ideas as well and so much insight
2: loads i mean ari avi sorry um it, he was less of a script consultant though he had ideas and he sort of threw it a, a few little bits and pieces in there and he kind of tweaked a little bit of the specifics in the dialogue um he i think drove the art department fucking crazy um uh because he was just like you know this is what that would look like that's not what that would look like uh we so the 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 his technical know-how in terms of just sort of props costume um locations like that kind of thing second to none really amazing and um he, he was he was great fun to work with
0: we interrupt this program to bring you a special report calling all agents independent podcasting much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top-secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's
1: right, as you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our
0: crosshairs this month?
1: Well, Scott, the Die Another Day commentary is live and we are getting dirty again with Harry Callahan with the third installment of the Dirty Harry saga, The Enforcer, it's gonna be marvelous.
0: And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spy hearts. but before this message self-destructs cam resume the spy jinx well I, I think before we wrap up i i did have a couple of questions post operation finale yeah sure one thing and this is just me from doing my research today and i haven't seen anything else about it since but your name came up with the night manager season two
2: I knew you were going to ask. I can't wait. I mean, it's, yes, it's John it's Le right?
0: I'm going to ask about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And God. the first season's terrific.
2: It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it is. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah.
0: I mean, how did that come about, and what's going on?
2: Good question. Uh, so uh, I will I will give an answer that will be less diplomatic than it should be. I'll maybe sprinkle a little bit of diplomacy in there. Um, so very long story short, I, 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 got asked to, I got asked to be part of a room for The Night Manager season two, um, around the time I sold Operation Finale. That room never materialized. I then got asked after, if I remember rightly, we announced that I was gonna do this movie, right? a Battle of Britain movie for Ridley Scott, and that Oscar Isaac was attached to Operation Finale about the same time and by complete coincidence both bits of news broke at the same time and that created a kind of uh I guess like bump for me and that led to the conversation of actually don't you know you should run a room rather than be in a room um which was really cool it was very flattering very kind of them and uh, I sort of went and presented them an idea of what I would do for the second season of The Night Manager and they were interested and we started talking about it. It was a slightly kind of um bumpy process. And I'm not sure if you've checked it out, but the night manager has I think 19 exec producers. It's something bonkers like that. So it is, it is, it is a film it is a show that, you know, when you actually scrape back the kind of layers of how it all came together, it's a lot more complicated than a lot of shows often are. Hugh Laurie, um, very, very involved in the creative, and an absolutely like I mean, Hugh Laurie like makes the first season of The Night Manager mm-hmm. made the first season of Night Manager. Really, it is he was rewriting scripts. He was like a, a, a complete tower house of performance. I mean, all three of the leads are amazing in that um, that, that show. But obviously, it, the show is very successful. So you you know, the, all three of them were quite skeptical about the idea of coming back for a second season. So I wrote two drafts, sorry, I wrote wrote a draft for the first episode and a draft for the second episode of another six episode run. Um, Gave it to Hugh, Tom and Olivia. Um, They all got on board. They all loved it. It was off to the races. And so we put a room together. Um, I worked with some absolutely amazing writers um, in that room. A guy called Charles Cumming, uh, a woman called Nancy Khan and a woman called Francesca Gardner, who is... You know, I'm unbelievably talented writer, um, uh, and and we wrote the second season. We outlined the whole thing. We had outlines. We had two episodes. We had structure in place. And uh, I don't know if this is like all that was going on because I was kind of shielded from a lot of the politics. But the story that I heard was that LeCary himself read my two drafts of episode one and two. Um, came and came into the producer's offices and said, you know, these are good. These are really good. They are more Matthew Orton than they are John mccarrey But um, yeah. And I, I, I got a phone call the next day being like, how do we make the scripts more John mccarrey And it 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 was this kind of sort of moment where I think I and a lot of other people realized that actually, of the 19 executive producers on board there was still a lot of disagreement about the direction that it was going in and um we had a very very specific window that we needed to hit for filming um and i think hugh got wind of uh the kind of you know horses being a bit nervous in the stable and was like i'm i'm not going to commit to this if you're going to fuck around with the scripts at this stage i'm out um And I don't think there is any point in making Night Manager season two if Hugh Laurie's not involved. So I was like, okay, I'm also going to bow out. Um, yeah, I mean uh, uh, Olivia and and Tom are both obviously stupendous actors and you know great talents to work with. But Hugh is Hugh is that show, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, imagining that show without Richard roper is is hard. um So yeah, so, so I ended up walking away, which was really sad. They. But but you know, and then I think if I remember rightly, uh, about three or four weeks later, John McCarry came into the office and was like, and had rewritten what he thought the Night Manager season two should be. I guess as a sort of protest to my work. So it was a real shame because um, I think everyone was really really excited about the direction we were headed.
0: Seems to be one of those lost pieces of work there. That's, uh, it's a shame. I, d- I don't think we'll ever see it a follow-up i know it still gets talked about but it's i think it's done
2: i i think they're still working on it um uh i think even david far may be back on it um i just yeah i i i don't know i don't know who wants it anymore it was so it was so like amazing for its uh you know the way it was financed the way that it was shot the way it was kind of Uh, hung together and released like everyone was so hungry for a sequel and they just dropped the ball and like maybe they'll do a sequel but i think most people will be like yeah
0: really well it was it was destination viewing for a few weeks like everyone was was, talking about it especially at least here in the uk i can't speak to canada but that was it was really the thing even like my my wife watched it and she doesn't like spy stuff at all. So it was like, sure, sure, like sure. okay, maybe it was... It was uh, sexy. It, it was, was sexy. It was, it was stylized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was nice. Yeah. It was, it was yeah, something different. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, big time. Absolutely. Hey-ho. Hey-ho. Uh, no, it was good.
1: I had a question about one of your other credits, which is, I guess, continuing the Oscar Isaac connection, just how you wound up. <laughs> Moon, Knight. Moon Knight. yeah. I think the best episode of the season, I think that's Thank you. pretty unanimous. I, I don't even think there's that much of a, um argument in that regard with the episode Asylum. I would love to know... Was it Oscar Isaac bring you in for that? Or how did that happen?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, um, I actually never asked if it was Oscar specifically. I've been talking to Marvel about um, Fantastic Four. Oh, wow. And uh, the same producer is producing or um, well, produced Moon Knight. And they, they were actually about to go into production. They were sort of on the way towards production. And as is often the way with these massive budget things, you know, for all kinds of reasons, um what they need changes. And um they, you know, they they had a draft of episode five, but like it it really didn't work. And um and they so they asked if I would come on board and kind of like do that, like re, sort of figure out the, the end of the series. I did a dialogue pass for Oscar um on some of the British stuff, uh, although um, he improves quite a lot as well uh so uh and actually i think some of the best lines in it are, uh his improvisation um i i'll take i would take credit for a couple but um he's yeah he was great uh and yeah so so i came on board and spent i think three or four weeks in uh, budapest with them and then uh it was sort of working from here um and yeah i mean like that that kind of work the kind of production rewrite work um it it it's really fun to do because you're kind of the 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 ship is moving and you've just got to help sort of steer it through the very um narrow slalom uh what was really fun about five is that it it obviously had this amazing ambition um and just needed someone to be like it, it it's this um, like this is, this is how we do it. I was really, I mean, I I also rewrote episode six, um, but they then rewrote my rewrite. Um, yeah, it was an interesting, interesting experience.
1: Were you familiar with the Moon Knight character going in?
2: Yeah, a bit. I mean, uh, but I, I sort of, I was, I had always sort of written him off as a bit of a kind of Batman ripoff. Um, and I hadn't read any of the um sort of more recent stuff that really like does some pretty wacky crazy shit with uh the did and um j- like just the kind of psychology of moon knight um i would love if they ever do a second season and you know there's a great run where uh raw um comes up against moon knight there's like a yeah that's that would be really cool i'd love to see Ra in the series um i'd be down for that for sure Yeah yeah i actually i have the thing under the sombrero back there uh is a ushapti um which uh is not from moonlight, but um my housemate bought it from me uh my old housemate bought me as a gift uh, yeah
0: well, i think before we go to our final question um, mm. i i'd be remiss if I didn't ask. Because we, we spoke about this lightly off air and uh, you teased it. So now I need to ask, you know, what, have you got, uh, what have you got going on at the moment? And as I hear, it might be spy related.
2: Uh, yeah, I am. In fact, do you guys know this book? Uh, Shibumi? Have you come across this book? I don't. no, no. Check it out. Dravenian is a real, or Rodney Whittaker who wrote under many pen names. He wrote a movie, called, oh, sorry, a book called The Eiger Sanction.
0: Which oh, Clint yeah. Yeah. Eastwood made oh, yeah. into a, yeah, yeah.
2: an all right film. Um, uh, the, the book is a sort of piss take of sort of stories like that and Diaga Sanction, the movie is quite sort of serious. Um, so so I'm writing the adaptation of Shibumi for the director, Chad Stileski, who made all the John Wick movies. Um, so he wants to, I think, to, this is his next movie. Shibumi is uh, a spy thriller that is also a, satire not just of spy thrillers but of the medium of popular fiction and so uh i am trying to write something that is a spy thriller uh, as well as being a satire of spy thrillers and the medium of cinema um so it's interesting uh it's you know it's 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 different to anything i've written before it's a particularly unique challenge because the book is very dated about 400 of the 700 pages of basically the main character's backstory um it's very thin plot like female characters are all bad blah 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 um but yeah i don't know it's kind of cool so that's so uh anyway that's like that's my i've just submitted the outline to those guys so waiting for their feedback um and then i'm writing a movie also spy related um called dark wire for Jason Bateman to direct and uh, Netflix, previous ones Warner Bros. This is Netflix. Um, Dark Wire is about the uh, Australian Federal Police and FBI's um, fake phone company that they set up called ANOM. Uh, they ran an anonymous phone company, um, essentially like a tech startup, um, when they realized that the world's criminals were communicating by via these kind of customized. Phones, and they, yeah, they ran this operation and um, uh, ended up getting uh, like getting tens of millions of messages of incriminating messages against the world's criminals, and then staged this enormous raid across the world uh, in June last year and arrested over a thousand people uh, in collaboration with like all of the world's kind of law enforcement agencies. It's a wild story. You should check it out um and obviously it's kind of uh it's great because they bring down loads of the world's criminals but kind of also sort of ent- entrapment so there's an interesting kind of moral question at the heart of it um yeah so i'm just outlining that at the moment
0: well uh, i i can't wait to see both of those realized on the big screen and on netflix and i uh i guess you've just booked yourself for your next visit on the show <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i hope so uh, yeah, let's, let's see. I mean, uh, if, the, if, the, if the gods of cinema are good to me, then uh, hopefully I can be chatting to you guys again in a couple of years. I'll, I'll try and meet you at
0: one of the press screenings for them in London. We'll, we'll Love figure that. It out.
2: That'd be great.
0: Um, okay, Matthew, this is the crunch time now. We've the spoken crunch. about Operation <laughs> Finale. We've spoken about what you're up to. We need to see if you fit into that tuxedo. The question <laughs> is... The question is, what is your favorite spy movie of all time?
2: Oh, man, you told me you're going to ask me this question and it stressed me out so fucking much today. (laughs) Uh, I So, like, I think that uh, because I just it's just so hard to narrow it down. Right. Like there are so many amazing spy movies what is a spy movie like parallax view would be very high up there is does that count sort of maybe um day of the jackal is like probably even higher than that day of the Jackal is like amazing not really a spy movie it's sort of assassin police movie but but yeah um i mean it, this is probably a bit of a cliched answer but the lives of others is just you know yeah may maybe may one of the best spy movies there is it's so affecting and quiet and brilliant um I, I i think that you know there's like the quiet spy movie uh mm-hmm. which which um you know is amazing i, I if we're going for like a slightly louder spy movie um i am controversially a massive fan of born ultimatum i think it's the best of the best of the lot right um if we're going for something like that um yeah i think that's so we're going like bang 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 kind of movies, Born If uh, We're going for like slightly kind of quieter spy movies. Lives of Others. Be what I go for. I think.
0: I think that's the first mention we've ever had of Lives of Others on the show. Oh really? We haven't tackled it yet, but I think it's the first of our guests that's actually brought it up as well.
2: Interesting. Yeah. oh it's so good. You know that you know this. You know the movie, right? another movie. We haven't tackled yeah. it yet, but I'm okay, aware cool, of the movie, cool. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Interesting. Mm. Check it out. So, what do you think? Yes. Yeah
0: um and, but born ultimatum me and cam go back and forth on that a lot between supremacy and ultimatum mr witch is the superior of the born uh, it, it's it's a, it's a tough fight that one it's a real it, slog
2: it, it is a tough fight uh i just think the sequences in ultimatum are the most confident uh the variety of the locations and the action is i mean that set piece in waterloo is just so good um and it kind of it comes to a conclusion that moment where he swims away at the end Ah, oh, come on uh i love it um i just think it's like it's the most confident installment in the trilogy and the one that kind of um gives you a sense of like both the others felt a bit like they were kind of leaving the door open for some more and although the one i was making does do that i just felt it was such a nice ending to the um you know you sort of wish they hadn't brought it back uh maybe a little bit although actually fifth ball movie's all right uh, people give it a hard time
0: uh it's i i give it a hard time yeah
2: yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah fair enough um but uh yeah no i um i i ah yeah it's i i i was i spent so long honestly today thinking about this like i was in one of my meetings today just like completely losing track every time <laughs> we, were, we were supposed to be talking about something else. I was like, but wait, which, which one is my favorite? Uh, I love those seventies ones, man. Like the seventies mm. spy thrillers or the paranoid thrillers are just like this. So good. But then also you've got like Tony Scott stuff, like enemy of the state. Spy game. Spy game. Amazing. Don't know if you can count man on fire, but man on fire. Fuck oh God. Um, I'm really, stretch, I'm really stretching the definition of spy movie here, I think. Don't, um, don't worry. That's
0: what we do professionally. Um, <laughs> sure. You know, yeah,
2: fair enough. We, we um, voted
0: both Parallax View and Day of the Jackal as the best, one of the best spy movies of all time. So they're on our oh, list really? too, to be okay. fair. So we, we count them. They're on okay. the list. It's fine. Cool.
2: Cool, cool, cool. All right. I'll take that. Um, amazing. Uh, well, guys, this has been so good. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's been our honour, our pleasure to have you join us, Matthew. Thank you for the time. Um, I think we could do this for another hour, but uh, I'm sure you've yeah. got a lovely evening ahead of you. So I want you to get back to I want you to get back to writing those spy films, so we can talk about them some more.
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe that's that's one for early tomorrow morning, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, awesome. All right, guys, uh, well it's so nice to meet you both, uh, Scott. I'll see you at a press screening sometime. Cam, if you're over in the UK, we'll uh, we'll do it proper for sure. Cool.
0: There you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Matthew Orton, taking us through the production and the screenwriting process for this week's film, Operation Finale. I mean, quite the uh, in-depth conversation we had there. Yeah, definitely. And
1: this has been a movie, um, Operation Finale, that has kind of bounced in and out of our list of things to cover. I've tried to get this one across several times, we had to change it because of scheduling. And I'm really happy that we finally found time to talk about it. The movie, I think, in terms of discussion points, was more interesting than I even realized it would be when I was, you know, trying to get it onto our schedule. But also that we were able to talk to Matthew, who brought, yeah, an unbelievable amount of insight into the process of writing this material, translating some, I think, very difficult history to the screen, and making it a, you know, compelling two-hour spy adventure
0: yeah it's, it's, it's funny because we've had a few uh, screenwriters on the show, and we might mention them Matt Charman being one of them who again came up with a concept and, and sort of passionately fought for it until it was made a major motion picture. Uh, and it, it's nice to know there's a connective tissue between the two of them and it's nice to see the passion that Matthew had for this story uh, and to the point of you know putting it out there and it getting turned into the film and I, I think he did a bang-up job with it.
1: yeah, and both um, very clearly interested in history. Mm -hmm. in a big way in terms of writing new material. And um, that is an aspect to me that's always fascinating because were I to become a screenwriter, like that would not be my avenue. I don't have that sort of knowledge or comprehension in terms of like translating very complex history to the screen. And I was really impressed with how easily, um, you know, Matthew was able to do that. And in a way where I never felt lost in the movie, I thought it did a really good job making it feel like an entertainment that people could sit and watch, but one that also had more, you know, headier thought about it. Like, it was a movie that we definitely had a lot of discussion about that movie, just in terms of its themes, its, you know, the historical elements that it was including and what they all meant. So I think he did just a fantastic job with that.
0: Well, I mean, firstly, no one wants to watch your uh, Silences Matt Helm and Goldfoot slash fic film. Uh, that that that's never getting off the ground, Cam. You can stop pitching it now. That's true. No one wants to see those movies that I am. Um, I
1: was going to say writing, but let's be honest, I've written them. They're in a drawer. He's he's shooting them at home
0: by himself. <laughs> the saddest of pandemic projects. <laughs> <laughs> he is the bikini machine. <laughs> um, but yeah, I uh, I suppose back to headier topics. It, it it's interesting because another. Uh, World War II film we spoke about well, a few months ago now, before the summer, uh, Paul Verhoeven's Black Book. And that was a film me and you had uh, an interesting time talking about because it, it definitely challenged the viewer. But I think it challenged us in different ways that this film does. And this film really makes us grasp and think about a person and what would go into doing these acts. Mm. And, you yeah, know, we spoke about that. And I had trouble in the review of, of having to think about someone like Eichmann as a person. But on reflection and and, and talking with Matthew and listening to interviews with Ben Kingsley, uh, I, I, I do understand the approach. I, I just maybe hadn't expected it. And I hadn't expected myself to be challenged so much by what I perceived before going into it as a World War II spy film.
1: I think something that was really interesting that jumped around my head when I was talking to him about, writing, in particular, Eichmann, you know, as played by Ben Kingsley, it reminded me of a conversation we had um, with Ben Power about writing Hitler in Munich, The Edge of War. And it was kind of like two different approaches where um, Ben Power talked about how with writing Hitler, you want to avoid the caricature and you want to get across how, you know, terrifying the guy could be in a room, but wasn't necessarily opening him up as like this, you know, realized human character the audience could really try to understand. And that's the opposite of what was going on here, where Eichmann, in some ways, he's impenetrable through the entire movie. But at the same time, there was a very clear attempt to try to make us understand kind of where this evil comes from, from a human being, as opposed to more of this kind of fearsome Nazi figure that we would know him as through history and so I thought that was a really interesting kind of contrast between those two writers and what they were trying to do with these very horrible people.
0: And it's funny talking about the connective tissue with the film with Matt Charman and having that angle on the film and him and you know Matt Charman seeing the potential of the script and saying, "Hey, we've got to get this out to Hollywood," and very quickly ends up in the hands of mGM and very quickly ends up in the hands of oscar isaacs and uh, mm-hmm. and and the director as well uh, It just goes to show the strength of Matthew's writing. And obviously, there were revisions, and there's things that he took out of the film which we discussed in the, in the interview but um I think at its core it's definitely a challenging film, but I think it's delivered in a way that is approachable and I think it doesn't push the viewer too far away. No, no, I agree.
1: And it also doesn't, though, on the on the flip side of that, it doesn't feel like it's sanded down for public consumption, if you will. Um, because that could easily be the case where they say, oh, just kind of, you know, tone it down and we'll just sell it to a mainstream audience. Like, I think... It actually asks tough questions of the audience, and I think there's some tough material, especially when you get towards the end and they're, you know, showing actual Holocaust footage in the movie. That's something that, like, you know, the average audience doesn't necessarily sign up to watch if they're picking a movie on a Friday night. But I think the movie's very smart in the way it tells a story, like Argo did as well. Um, And Argo was referenced in the interview of pulling you into, you know, a very complicated, you know, political event making it feel like you are absorbing actual information and absorbing an actual element of history that's interesting and complex, but at the same time allows you to walk away feeling like you've, you know, essentially been on an adventure with these characters and you have an emotional takeaway.
0: Yeah, and, and you, you look with the discussion we had originally, the script actually had perhaps a touch more comedy in it. Yeah. Or, or perhaps a little bit more fast in it. Like it was pointing out some of the silly nature of all this in, in some aspects. Um, and that also got sort of toned down through the process of creating the film and the revisions the film had. And these are the sort of things that I really enjoy about our chats with people who make the films because you just don't know this. And this also isn't the stuff that's like on the bonus features of the DVD. No. this is This is really like how a film gets made and the reality of how a film gets made because there are sacrifices and, and Matthew did talk about one of the things he learned from this film is is you know picking your battles which what hill do you want to die on um, and I, I think they made the right call I think this tonally works in a film I think I, I'm not sure any more comedy would have done it for me
1: right yeah like to me I think it works just perfectly as is um, I didn't have the maybe the frustration with the uh, the Napoleon line that he had. Um, it jumped out to us at least, so it, I guess it kind of worked. Um, but uh, like no, I mean it's a classic case, and we've talked to many writers at this point. Writing movies is hard because you know when you say write a story, you know just for yourself at home, that story can just exist in your mind as that's the story right there. When you're writing a film there are, you know, other people are involved. Chris White, you know, obviously is an acclaimed writer himself, so he's going to have some input that he wants to give. Oscar Isaac as well, very, you know, intelligent actor who I think understands story very well given what the projects he picks. You know, you look, typically Oscar Isaac has pretty good eyes for material. So right there, you know, it's about collaboration and you can see how certain elements are going to change over the course of the process. And I think the key is, you know, are you ultimately happy with the end result? That's probably the most important thing, even though there's gonna be,
0: you know, changes made along the way. And it's interesting thinking about like the, the feedback. He said he got quite abrupt and rude emails back from people who didn't like the the characterization of Eichmann and, and giving him a a personality. But that if you if you read a little bit about what happened with the trial and like the whole banality of evil article that was put out that was kind of the talking point around the guy of just how normal he was aside from this horrific, horrific side of his person and his history and his choices in life. Um, and so I think giving him that sort of fully fleshed out existence is it was the right choice for the film.
1: I think it's the braver choice as well. Like, yeah. I think to try to acknowledge the humanity of Eichmann was important to this story and is it the choice that all writers would have made? No, I don't think they all would have, but I think that's what makes this movie, for me, like that's one of the most compelling aspects of the movie.
0: Yeah, I, it, it's, I mean, we will be talking about all spy films of, of all time, but this is, that's probably the thing I'll take from this film. And I'll remember in our future discussions when we're talking about other bad people from other parts of history or this part of history that we discuss in our other spy films, I'll always remember. You know, silly things, in a sense, like the toilet scene. Mm. It, it was written to give him a sense of humanity, uh, despite his actions. And I think much as that is a choice that did rub some people the wrong way, it rubbed me the wrong way on sort of initial viewing, and we discussed it. Uh, I think it was the right choice. Yeah, I agree. Um, but otherwise, yeah, just some other insights. I mean, fans of The Night Manager, you've got a little bit of a what could have been with season two. I mean, I know it's still somewhere in the production cycle some people are still talking about doing it but i feel like that's the sort of magic has gone it was lightning in a bottle for a small amount of time and i think that, i think we've gone past that point yeah and i didn't acknowledge it in when we were actually talking to matthew but like um
1: night manager was a crossover hit because you raised that question you weren't sure if it was but it definitely was a hit in north america as well so i'm sure there would be an appetite for a season two
0: it it's all just more an annoyance in my sense because we live in a world where the Fast and Furious franchise gets like 12 films. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jurassic Park gets five spin-offs. Jurassic Park's mm. a great film, but it did not need five spin-offs. And yet, some really great television and some really great films never get the follow-up they should have had. And uh, I think The Night Manager is one of those ones, had they done a follow-up season in 2017, maybe 2018, Yeah. I think it may have run longer, and we would still be talking about it more today.
1: Yeah, it feels like the time has kind of passed now, but yeah. Same with you, basically. Exactly. Yes, yes. My time is so long past, yes. And it was interesting just talking to him briefly about Moon Knight, because I'm always interested about just working within kind of that Marvel machine. Easily, I was not blowing smoke at all. Episode 5 of Moon Knight is the best episode of the season. A very interesting, surreal, kind of emotional journey for the character, and I think it really... Works And I was really intrigued just to hear him talking about how he was at one point talking about Fantastic Four, a property that has been done dirty three times on the big screen and one time not on the big screen where there was the version that was, of course, in a vault uh, that Roger Corman made back in the 90s. There is so much potential to that Fantastic Four that uh, I can understand why still writers would
0: be drawn to try to realize it because there's magic there. I'd be interested to chart the timeline of when that conversation took place with Fantastic Four because obviously it like it's still only just got a director. Matt Shackman, I think, just signed on to do it after some behind-the-scenes nonsense and it lost a director, is that right? Yes, that's correct.
1: John Watts was going to direct it, who had done the last few Spider-Man movies, and he dropped out to go do, I think, a Star Wars thing. And then uh, Matt Shackman jumped over from Star Trek Four to do... Fantastic Four. It's all very convoluted. Uh, a, a
0: Star Wars thing. Is that the next Star Wars story? Um, I don't know what it is. It's a TV show. That's something, something. A Star Wars thing. Yeah. There yeah. we go. Perfect. It's just interesting to see the the sort of talent that Marvel are looking to work with as well. It, it, you would think there are certain people they would go to directors, screenwriters, and the like, actors perhaps that would just sort of suit that fold. But yeah, you know, they're reaching out and and working with Matthew Orton who made quite a hard-to-watch character story about a man who performed atrocities in World War II. That doesn't have a direct line to Marvel, but obviously he knows how to write characters, and, and so they, they're tapping him up. And it actually, for me, it shows signs that the Marvel Cinematic Universe might have a future.
1: Definitely, yeah. And I mean, Marvel is always looking to people who can write character. That's very important to them. But also people that are, you know, have a high degree of professionalism
0: so that speaks well of him as well and yeah operation finale is not without comedy you know, There it has its moments there's a this bit with a training in krav maga and they mentioned uh, why do i get chosen for these things oh anti-semitism and getting it up uh, you know a, a massive roar from the cinema in terms of laughter it's, it has its it, its moments so uh yeah i'm excited to see what the future holds for mr matthew Wharton. definitely definitely well um there you go folks that was our two episode deep dive on 2018's operation finale Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it and let us know if you have question for you cam what are we doing next week well scott a bit of a change of pace we are going back
1: ...to reunite with Inspector Clouseau. We tackled him the first time on the Patreon, but this is the first time on the main feed... ...that we are going to look at a Peter Sellers Pink Panther film. The spy-related Pink Panther Strikes Again. The only one that's really applicable for SpyHard's um, coverage. But it's also like a case where... Something we'll do more going forward on the show... ...where we'll look at entries and franchises that brought in spy elements... ...a la Cars 2, for example...
0: Yeah, and what we'll do is we'll just tackle that one film that really is a spy movie and and not bog ourselves down with the rest. We don't really want any repeats of Men in Black International. No, we do not. Nor does the world. No, no, never again, never again. Never again. Uh, Well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out The Pink Panther Strikes Again from 1976. Finally, Peter Sellers is getting a spy film where hopefully he stays till the end credits. (laughs) Time will tell. Time will tell. And join us next week. Uh, If you like what you heard on this interview, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us on our mission to become the most known spy podcast of all time, which may incidentally mean we become the worst spies of all time, but I will take that loss. That's, your, that's, your, that's yours to bear. It, it certainly is. It certainly is. And uh, do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, folks, is it finale or finale?